Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. A topic that has become more and more popular to discuss online and also in many different churches is the topic of whether or not women can have the office of pastor in the church. So to discuss this very important topic is none other than the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. Great, very controversial subject, very controversial right now in the SBC uh, convention. Uh, they're going through it right now, so it'll be interesting to dig into it. Yeah, and what's great about this show, Joe, is not only, as you mentioned, the SBC, but we actually received an email a couple of weeks ago from somebody who was attending a church, and at the church they were attending, they brought out a woman pastor. And so she went to the congregation and said, hey, I, I have a real big problem with this. I don't see it scripturally and so forth. And I guess after that discussion, she received a very long email, which she sent to me and said, hey, could you help me answering this? Because she knew it's wrong, but there are things that she wanted to help uh, help address. And so we we looked at that, and, and we were talking about that, Joe. And then this whole thing comes up right after that whole situation. This whole thing comes up with Rick Warren. And now this is something that's been boiling. As you mentioned, the SBC, they more recently had uh, the, their convention this year, not too far from us, in Anaheim in Orange County. And at that convention... Rick Warren comes up and gives, you know, his speech about how he's trained over a million pastors. A lot of people are wondering, how on earth have you trained over a million pastors? That would be a lot of training. Um, but I think he means how many books have been sold and people reading The Purpose Driven Life or something. But nonetheless, and we have a clip we're going to play for you, because what's taken place, Joe, is and, and as you well know, is that they have basically the committee that decides if somebody can be an SBC church— they kind of kicked the can down the road, so to speak, mm-hmm. because they didn't want to make a choice as to whether or not Saddleback Church, which used to be pastored, he's now retired, by Rick Warren, can still be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention because they appointed a few women pastors right before he retired. Yeah, right before he retired, about three women, I think, became pastors, yeah. And then now the person who is now appointed as the head pastor of Saddleback him and his wife are co-pastors, Joe. And so because people were asking questions, he then gave this pragmatic speech, which you guys are here right here. He gave this pragmatic speech about all the good that they've done, never addresses whether or not they believe that women can be pastors and so forth, which is against the very confessions of the SBC church. Contrary to about almost 2,000 years of church history. <laughs> that would hinder, yeah. that would that'd be and a problem as well. More importantly, well, we'll get into it. The scriptures. Itself. The scriptures, exactly. And when and we by, see that, by the way, yeah. praise God. Before we go on, uh, men and women, we believe that we're created equal in the image of God. Uh, Galatians three twenty eight. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. Jesus spilled the blood. He poured out his blood for all of us. Uh, we're created equal, uh, but we believe we have the Bible is very clear. We have different roles. For instance, uh, if Rick Warren decided when he became, he left the pastor and they appointed a few women pastors, and he said, "Really, you know, I'm retiring because I want to have a baby and I want to nurse babies." And I want to actually 
have my you know body reshaped and, and go through radical surgery because there's these processes whereby I can have a baby now. And we would say, Rick, don't do that, man. Don't do that. The Bible says not to put on that which pertains to a woman. In, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, very clear that the Malachi, the, the feminist, the men who become effeminate and, and seek to become like women, that's contrary to Scripture. We wouldn't be bigoted. We wouldn't say we, we're against men. We just want us, we want to go, are we going to follow the Lord or not? Are we going to put Jesus Christ, is he truly Lord? Is he truly first in our lives? Or are we going to seek to find wiggle room and try to make the Bible say what we want to say? We're going to submit to what Scripture says. This is basically uh, because really what's anti-man and what's anti-woman is defacing what God's called us to be as men and women and switching the roles that God's given us. And that's where the danger lies. Yeah, and, and this problem that's happened now with the SBC, as we had mentioned, and wondering, okay, what's going on here? And they've kicked the can down the road, Joe, in terms of, hey, instead of actually saying you can still be an SBC if you have women pastors or not, they now want to put together a committee mm -hmm. to decide whether what the word pastor means. So I want you to play this because Al Mohler, we don't agree with everything um, you know, when it comes to Al Mohler, but Al Mohler made a really good point here uh, in this little clip here, as you'll first hear Rick Warren's pragmatic, I guess, <laughs> expounding upon all the great works uh, that he's done. And then you will see quite clearly Al Mohler saying, man, if we got to have this committee for everything, nothing will ever make sense. But guys, check this out. I reached over 120 uh, harvest crusades before I was 20. We baptized 56,631 new believers. And as the Southern Baptist Church sent 26,869 members overseas to 197 nations. 78,157 members of our church signed our membership covenant after taking a four-hour membership class. I've had the privilege for 43 years of training 1.1 million pastors. My concern is as a churchman, a theologian, and uh, someone who loves this convention, as I know everyone in this room does, if we eventually have to form a study committee over every word in our confession of faith, then we're doomed and we're no longer a confessional people. I am a confessionalist. This is a confessional denomination. We say what we believe in specific words that are the Baptist faith and message. The moment we start to, of necessity, have study committees to decide what the words mean, the words mean what Southern Baptists said in the year 2000. At that time, the word pastor was used by the committee and adopted by the convention because we were told that is the most easily understood word among Southern Baptists for pastoral teaching leadership. Now, Joe, I think that is a <laughs> very interesting, first of all, just because Rick Warren and a lot of the stuff he's been into. And if you guys haven't seen, you got to check out this Emerging Church. Yeah. I mean, just please, if you haven't seen that, you can see it free online as well. You can order it from us if you want to bless the ministry, but you can see it free online. You can just type it in, and one of our distributors puts it on their YouTube channel. And it, it's such an important, important thing. And awesome, you can also find it on Amazon Prime as well. But, but Joey, so you've done the exposing on Rick Warren for years, and some of the, you know, the, some of the stuff he's into, let alone this new soft com uh, complementarianism, I guess you would say, that he has going on. But just not understanding, I guess, the entire SBC, not understanding now what a pastor is, not the entire SBC, but at least this committee, he's going to have to figure it out for them. It's just very interesting, Joe, and I know we have an entire show we just did on what it means to be a pastor. 
But we want to go over on this show, Joe, not just simply, hey, this is Rick Warren or this is Al Mohler or this is Beth Moore or this is, you know, uh, Joyce Meyer or whatever. But we want to go over the 15 reasons prohibiting female pastoral authority in the pastoral epistles. So looking through those pastoral epistles, those those letters written specifically to pastors about how to conduct the church, and we're going to look at these 15 points of just saying, hey, this is just what the Bible says, because that's the most important point, Joe. We could appeal to history, but if it's not in the Bible, who really cares? Yeah, <laughs> I, amen. I, mean, I mean, we get down yeah, to absolutely. it. So I, I want to start with this one, Joe. Uh, number number one, because they can go look if they want to see what we believe a pastor means. You can go look at our, our teaching. We'll put a link in the description. But number one, Joe, First Timothy one three, okay, yeah. that Paul is very clear with as you know in Ephesus he's leaving Timothy there to warn that certain men are not to teach false doctrine. How is that a, a, one of the reasons this is now prohibiting? Uh, female pastoralship. Yeah, well, when you recognize in the 15, and by the way, my list started with seven or eight, and, and I, it kept growing. I said, I'm going to send these, my list, boom. I said, Chad, it's up to 15. And Chad will agree to this, and we'll, we'll both agree strongly. Even one or two of these reasons would suffice to just totally destroy this new, you know, feministic view that's come to the church that 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 the uh, women should be pastors over men and so forth. It's absolutely unbiblical, but the reason... Uh, we start with uh, 1 Timothy 1.3, is Paul, when you understand the context of the pastoral epistles, this, these are the letters that Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy, to Pastor Titus, as to how the church was to function. And uh, he tells him that in verse 3, he says, I, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. By the way, who's he concerned about teaching the strange doctrines there, Chad? Men, Man, yeah. right? Paul doesn't, Paul's not, it's not as though women were, as some try to say, they were trying to take over the church and they were leading the church there and so forth. And Paul said that straight. No, it's the men who are teaching the doctrines there. But the concern here, the broader concern I have here is that the, 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 the main thrust is that the teachings that the church is based upon, and this is Paul with apostolic authority, uh, uh, there's warnings against strange doctrines. So if Paul lays down biblical doctrine, which he's going to do in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, uh, to subvert his doctrine, his teaching, and contradict it, would then to be to go against his very injunction to Timothy to teach certain men, urge them, encourage them not to teach strange doctrines. So if you teach the opposite of what Paul's teaching here, you're teaching the very false doctrines that Paul was concerned about, especially if you're contradicting the doctrines that he lays down. So that's a good place to start. Yeah, I think this is a really good place to start. First Timothy Obviously, and if you wanted to know 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, these are pastoral epistles from Paul to Timothy. I, I love reading through these. I know I've meditated on these so much. So just to start there and understanding that there are false doctrines that he's going to make sure, Timothy, watch out for this. Watch out for Amen. these men teaching these strange things. Now, Joe, number two on this list is 1st Timothy 2, verse 8, and this applies to Every place. How so with First Timothy two eight? Well, it's important because later on, Chad, when you read uh, the the young lady getting this response from a pastor saying, "Hey, uh, you know the culture response." It, it just Paul's more concerned about what's going on in Ephesus. So when Paul's talking about women not being pastors and having authority over men and teaching them as pastors, uh, that has to do with you know that's just at Ephesus because of certain dynamics that were taking place there. Well, guess what? We find out that Paul's instruction is transgeographical. 
that goes beyond the local geography of the church at Ephesus because we read right in the midst of those verses that we're talking about that he's going to try to say are cultural. We read in 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. So he's talking about more than just Ephesus. Men, wherever you are, these, these truths are going to apply to you. And by the way, you go, well, isn't lift? And some, you know, some will say in their study notes, you know, especially those who don't believe in that are cessationists, not always, but many that are cessationists will say, lifting up hands and praying with your hands lifted up or praising God, you know, that's just a cultural thing. You'll see that sometimes in your study Bible notes. You're like, I shake my head. I mean, go ahead and read in what happened with the Malachites, with Moses when his hands were lifted, <laughs> or with Ai when Joshua lifted his hands. And by the way, God was God told Moses to write this down for Joshua. So we're in the New Testament and we have spiritual war going on. I've done some teachings. There will be no teaching because I'm going through First Timothy right now. And when we hit chapter 2, and we just hit chapter 2, but we hit verse 8, it's probably a few weeks away, the importance of lifting your hands. This is something that's transgeographical, this passage and, and, and First Timothy. And to say oh, it just has to do with Ephesus is ridiculous. Because guess what? Paul, I'm glad the Holy Spirit inspires him to say certain key things in this passage because God knew what was going to happen today and how he was going to make sure that the, the truth is there so that his truth can't be subverted regarding the leadership in the church. By the way, quickly, and we're going through these quick. I know I'm speaking a little fast. You can put me on three-quarter speed if you want, uh, but uh, because we want to get Don't all 15 Don't do it too slow. In. You might sound drunk. I, yeah. ex- I did that on accident one time. <laughs> you know, we want to get all 15 of we these don't points drink. in. Yeah, we don't <laughs> <laughs> Amen. We want to get all 15 of these in, but I'll mention this. The early church, the apostles and the pastors, after the apostles would die off, and Paul was an apostle born out of due time, we're talking about the 12 apostles, right? They were all male, you know? Just as God created male and female as husband and wife, Adam and, and Eve, you know, not Adam and Steve. You don't have female apostles among the 12 apostles, and their names are written in New Jerusalem, ensconced there for all eternity. And so leadership has been male uh, uh, through the church for the last, you know, 2,000 years. It's only relatively recently, through the feminist movement largely, entering into the church, that this has even been questioned, which is mind-blowing. Yeah, no, I think that's really important to address as well, as you mentioned, that that idea that the cultural relevance of now wanting to switch up doctrines, yeah, you know what, the culture accepts all of this and so forth and, and whatnot, and so we have to make sure we're a little more accepting of that. But as we're going to read, and Joe, this is your next point, this is the clear interpreting the unclear, so to speak, right, when we talk about biblical interpretation— but we're, I want to read straight from 1 Timothy 2, because now we kind of get into the meat of the argumentation. But 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, Joe, that seems like a clear text, a prohibition, and um, I don't know much about getting around that one. Uh, I don't see how Paul could have made it, made it more clear. I mean, what words would he have used to make it more clear than this, that she's to be a woman should be learning quietness and full submission to the men, the male leadership. I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to remain silent. Why would Paul use such strong words? Well, because he knew the subversion that the enemy would try to bring in the church, just as he did in Eden, and Paul's going to actually bring that up. This is spiritual warfare, actually, because Satan wants to... Uh, compromised churches, and he wants to say, oh, this is cultural homosexuality. Yeah, well, that was just a cultural thing, and that's what many are saying now today. No, and we're going to see Paul's going to make strong arguments. But when you look at this 
particularly in light of what we're going to read later in Timothy, just a few verses later, when he talks about leadership and teaching being male, and he juxtaposes this. It's it's so clear, but right here, we could have just, we could spend the whole show parking out on these verses right here, these two verses that you read. And, and you know, you have to ask yourself, when you read scriptures that are this clear, you know, that are, that are so clear that she's supposed to remain silent and listen and and not to have the pastor role, have authority, that would be, or teach the men. Do you really, is Jesus really your Lord? I'm, no, and I'm only saying this if you're like, how can I get around that? How can I push my agenda or what I want to be true? Then you have to say, are you really looking for truth? That, this is a huge concern because that's the bottom line with a lot of what I see going on. A lot of the shenanigans going on in the church uh, right now, which is this, you know, nonsensical uh, and unbiblical is because people don't want to submit to the word of God. That's the issue. Now, there's some people that maybe they've been, you know, they've been under teaching that's twisted these scriptures long enough where they're sincere, but they've just heard them a different way. So I'm not saying impunity everybody's motives here, but if you're coming to the scripture with the motive of how can I get around these verses? How can I make them say something other than they say? That's, you got to say, hey, is Jesus really your Lord? Amen? Yeah, no, this is really important, especially as you mentioned, Joe, as every single verse, it just seems like there's a nail and it keeps getting hammered. And it keeps getting hammered. Amen. Because verse 13, which is the next argumentation, uh, the next reason, which is, for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. So, Joe, it seems like that Paul is going back to the creative order rather than just talking about this woman or the set of women that are in Ephesus. Yeah, Chad, this is such an important point because we've already made the point that it's not only transgeographical, this the, the teaching here by Paul uh, in every place, you know, but also it's 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 a transtemporal. It goes beyond the temporary situation as well because Paul bases argument. And this is another slam dunk. Paul bases argument as to why uh, men are to be the pastors based on the creative order, based on cosmology, really, Chad. So it's quite interesting. In fact, let's read the verses into each other. Uh, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Uh, I don't know how this can be made clear as well. Paul is saying, hey, and I believe, I have I have no doubt in my mind, that the reason the Lord emphasizes the order of creation here, and this is why the man is to be the pastor of the church, and that pastoral is, is male, is Paul saying he's going way back to God's intended order in cosmology with regard to the creative order. And the Holy Spirit does this because guess what? He knew if he said less, right, how long ago this 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 passage would have been jettisoned a long time ago in favor of uh, female pastors. So I think it's important too when we look at the creative order, Chad, in Genesis chapter 2, 18, uh, he creates the man first. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 18, that the man... It speaks of the man as being the head of the woman, and it talks about she's created as a helpmate for him. And then Paul says this in a non-pastoral epistle, which supports what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and verses 8 and 9. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but women for the man's sake. Again, Paul is using this order of headship, not only in Timothy, but also in, this is, in fact, it's interesting, when Paul makes his argument regarding the role of male and female, we're seeing that more than once, he appeals to the creative order and cosmology. 
to make his point, which I think is is very, very powerful. So Paul's not stating what he's stating based on cultural trends. He's stating what he's stating based on the creative order, on the the very order of creation. Yeah, and this is important too because uh, just as a just a side note, so many people will read these things and they'll hear even us talking about this and they'll think to themselves, "Well, uh, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, they 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 taught together, and you had a, a woman and a man there, a husband and a wife teaching." And at no point at any time is Paul or us or any of us saying, yeah, women can't share truth with people. They can't share the gospel. They can't do any. That is the most ridiculous thing. And in all honesty, I think it's dishonest by those who make the argumentation from the what they call the egalitarian position that all of a sudden that, you know, Joe, myself or anyone who believes in what we call complementarianism or that God has actual offices that complement one each other, one another. So that guess what? that the church has an order and is not disorderly and chaotic. And God has these roles specifically for our benefit, each and every one of them. And to, to then use that and then say, I mean, just nonsensical stuff that you see. I've seen it online. I've seen her, people talking about it. To make your point and to do it in such a, I guess, rude and robust way, like all of a sudden that, you know, people who believe what the Bible clearly says right here, what we're reading— also want to make sure, you know, women only do this and only do that. When the Bible's really clear, women are able to share the gospel. They're yeah, not able, yeah. they're commanded. They're co-heirs with Christ with us, as we mentioned, that guess what? There's neither male nor female, but all, but guess what? There's neither male nor female that doesn't then say, oh yeah, there's no roles no, here. Priscilla yeah. and Aquila taught Apollos more accurately, but Priscilla wasn't a pastor, you know? So we agree, women, praise God, women, there's many women that teach better than many men. Women are gifted to teach, and, and they're, they're, they're given their roles and so forth as far as what they're called to do. Uh, they have privileges, which we'll see that, and we've talked about briefly, that men don't have in the kingdom, right? And to me, they have the most incredible privilege, and that's bringing life into the world. And it's mind-boggling, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But, and men aren't, aren't birthing children and bringing life into the world, which is the most beautiful thing I believe on the planet, besides uh, besides receiving Christ and being saved through what Jesus did on the cross, so uh, that's the, it, it muddies the waters. They try to do that when they know that we do believe that there's many men that are very gifted. Right in this fellowship, there are men and in thousands of fellowships around the world, there are men that have the gift of teaching by the Holy Spirit, but they're not qualified. When you look at the list in First Timothy three to be pastors, does that diminish who they are? No, it just means they don't meet the qualifications. But they may be bearing fruits in all fruit in all kinds of other ways. But so we have to go by. Again, we have to submit to what God's Word says, and here it's very clear that Paul bases this on the very order of creation. Yeah, and and it is important to recognize the difference between the blessing, the gifting of God, and also the offices that God God has made. He gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, Ephesians 5, 8, 9, 10, 11, in that area. Amen. All right, Joe. So we are going to move on to the next point, which is, guess what? The next verse. So not only do we get... That for it was Adam who was created, first created, and then Eve. But then verse 14. Guys, this is from the same argument that Paul is making here. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Yeah, so Paul makes, he, he's making, you know, trans-geographical, uh, you know, statements. He's making trans-temporal uh, declarations regarding the, the, the pastorate and why it's male. Uh, Paul's giving theological reasons. He's inspired. If we're genuinely Christians, we believe it's the Holy Spirit inspiring this, and the points are being made saliently and powerfully for reason. But now he gives a judicial reason, which I think is very important. 
Uh, he gives a, a judicial reason, reason as to why men are the path to be pastors and so forth. And he states, but not allow women to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. And then he states, and it was not Adam who was deceived, now the judicial reason, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And it's interesting, as a result of the fall, uh, well, the fall took place as a result of the woman abdicating, Adam abdicating his responsibility. Uh, well, we can argue about that, but the woman took the initiative. She partook, she was deceived, and she gave to the man. And what's interesting, as a result of that, when you look at the the judgments, the divine judgment that God handed down in Genesis chapter 3, you see something very interesting taking place. You see that the the woman, her desire would be for the man. And that's only used one other time, that that Hebrew word, in, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, Torah. to use just a few verses later where, where sin is desiring to rule over Cain. Cain yeah. But he must rule over or master it, and he fails. He kills his brother. And it's the same construction here in the Hebrew. It's very interesting. And the curse is because they've now inherited a fallen nature because Adam partook as well. Sin spreads the world. Is that that guess what? That sinful nature now and her desire to rule over him, which is where the battle of sexes comes from. We read about that in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So your desire, her desire is to be to rule over him, but he's going to rule over her. And Paul states because of the judicial, the, the divine judgment that took place there, that's another reason the woman was deceived and fell under that divine judgment, that she would continue in that role. Now it's interesting because because Paul quotes the law in 1 Corinthians back in reference to this as well. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. He says, let the women keep silent. And this is after chapter 11, a little bit earlier, where he talks about the man as the head of the woman. He says, let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as it says in the law of Moses, which includes the first five books, including Genesis, which we just read from about the woman would desire the man, but he would rule over her. So he says, this is based on the law. He says, which the law also says, and if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. But it's totally proper for her to rule and have authority over a man to be the pastor. It's just, it, the, the view is fraught with contradictions. As I said, this was not the view of the church for almost 2,000 years, you know, uh, and uh, certainly not of the church fathers. You don't even see the church fathers discussing this is something that they should allow. Uh, so I think it's important that we understand uh, that we're talking about the creative order here, and not only creative order, but now Paul introduces a judicial reason based on the law. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point, Joe. Now, this next one may be uh, interesting for some people when they first read this. In fact, I've had a number, I know we've had a number of emails come in and, and stuff. People ask this one. Verse 15 says, But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So first of all, before that is a an argument for, you know, or argument against a prohibition for female pastoralship, what's really going on there with these women preserved by childbearing? So you're saying when I have a child, then I get to be saved and not before yeah, that? You some know? actually believe, I think some in Morocco, I've, I've uh, uh, seen a Moroccan group over there when I was actually, they were immigrants from Ireland that held that view that you couldn't be saved by Christ blood unless you had a, a baby how heartbreaking and tragic that would be for any yeah. woman being taught that would be a, that false doctrine however it's interesting here uh and the reason i bring this is one of the one of the points is paul 
is there's a lot of juxtapositions going on because now Paul is setting forth a, a key role that women have that Satan wants to blind them to. Okay, Now, of course, some Christian women will have the gift of singleness uh, or God uh, prevents them for some reason or allows them to be prevented from having children because he has other things for Christian women to do. But typically, uh, he has them having children for a reason. And so what, now men are supposed to be pastors, elders, teachers of the church. Uh, it doesn't mean women don't have some teaching roles, but we're talking about the pastoral authoritative role in the church setting at the very least at this point. But it's very important here to understand that now Paul, why Paul does this, he wants to let the women know the criticalness of their particular role. And he states this, but women will be preserved or saved, reword translated saved, through childbirth if they continue as, as childbirth, faith, love, sanctity, and moderation. Uh, so what is going on there? Uh, and we don't have time to explain this because we're trying to get through all 15 points uh, but in, in any depth. But uh, that word childbearing is a, is a compound word of a couple different Greek words that you don't find anywhere else in Scripture except one other place, a few chapters later, where Paul talks about women that go astray because they become busy, busybodies after they've become widows and they're under 60 years old because they have a lot of energy stuff. They go house to house. They go aside, he says, after Satan. They break their first faith or pledge. Uh, and Paul says for those younger widows, he says, have them bear children. There's the same compound word. Why? He says, to save them, go ahead and read it, so they don't fall into those social vices. In other words, if Eve was chasing uh, Cain and Abel around a little sooner, maybe, he probably wouldn't be hanging out with the serpent, right? So women, when they fulfill their role and bring godly, bring children to the world, who they are to teach, as we read in Titus chapter 2 and the book of Proverbs, they have this incredible role not only to bring them into the world, but they're the ones molding. Who molded? I think this is a divine genius in First and Second Timothy. You find out who molded Timothy to become the man, young man of God he was before Paul got a hold of him and called him his true son of faith. It was Eunice. Yeah. It was Lois. Lois it yeah. was his mother and his grandmother. grandmother. Yep. Uh, they are the ones that, in Paul says, the faith that was first seen in them and how you've known the scriptures since you were young. In fact, women play a vital role, but see what Satan wants to do, he wants to get you out of that role of childbearing if he can, unless God's called you out of that role. But he wants to take you out and say, no, that's not for you. He wants you to be a pastor. You don't have time for children and so forth. And therefore, he can get the, the, the mother who plays a key role. The word helpmate is used of God, the woman being the helper of the man. He's used of God over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It means shield at times, right? A woman is a shield to her kids. She trains them up in the way they should go in, in, in a critical way and helps them become the men of God that the pastoral role helps fulfill as they grow older, okay? This is critical. So what does Satan do? Oh, you don't want your role. And men, you want to have babies. Men, you want to be women, don't you? And women, you want to be men. And you want to have a man's role, don't you? He gets it all messed up and jacked up. In fact, right back to Genesis, the woman's desire would be to roll over the man. But he would roll over her. Battle of sexes started way back there. It's going on today. And now it's in the church because people don't want to submit to the clear words of Scripture. No, it's so important to get these, these truths out there because I, I think people... One, people can get offended by this topic, but it is important that we speak the truth of what the scriptures clearly teach on the subject and show the dangers of what happens when people are led astray. And, you know, I'm sure, Joe, I know over the years you've seen the danger of the, the woman being the leader of the house and the man taking a step back and not getting into the word as much and not leading their family and knowing the truth as well. And that's Absolutely. just part. Ask any, any wife, ask any wife, talk to any wife who is the spiritual leader of her house where her husband is not, and ask them how that feels. Ask yeah. them how. Ask them some of the dangers. A lot of women beg their husbands to lead. 
If you're a man of God, man, and you've got a family, you need to step up and be a loving servant leader and be Christ-like. Yeah, amen. It's so true. Okay, Joe, so point number seven, and it's not the last one, but it is an important one. It gets stronger and stronger. It does. So right after this list, we just went over this listing from Paul, specifically going against uh, the grain here from the modern culture, and explaining this all the way back to creation, explaining also there's other things for you to be doing as well. But then pastors are called to be men. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is the next verse. And remember, guys, there's no chapter breaks. Paul didn't write chapter That's 3. Right. Good point, there's no Chad. chapter breaks. You're going right into this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Yeah, and you know what? We're trying to get through all 15, but this is like, it's, I mean, again, how much clearer could it get? Because he's come, he's saying this, Chad, right on the heels of saying that he doesn't permit or allow a woman to teach or have authority over men and because of the creative order and so forth and because of the fall as well. You don't even need the fall, but he brings that up as well. The creative order would be enough, right? He brings that in to, to bolster his, his point. And then now he's talking about the, the, the authority. He's talking about the leadership. And he specifically states, thus saith the Lord through Apostle Paul. It's a trustworthy statement. And I love it. He does that over and over again through the epistles when he really wants to make a point that that uh, you, you really need to pay attention to and hold on to. Uh, well, no, it's just a trustworthy statement for the for the church at Ephesus. Wrong. Paul wants these, these truths to be etched in our hearts uh, that it is a trustworthy statement. If a, if a man, as, Paul, as Chad read, aspires uh, the office of overseer, I think it's Episcopus there. It is a fine work he desires to do. Again, he shows that while women are called to this specific role, men are called to this role. Just as Paul, if there was a problem with, in the early church of men wanting to be women, well, he addressed that. He called them Malachi. said they wouldn't inherit God's kingdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Yeah, and, and this is important. And you mis- mentioned uh, one of the Greek words there, Episcopos, uh, Episcopos, I can't remember which way. It goes, and, and that, you know, we, we hold to the view that pastor, elder, overseer, and so forth, not deacon, uh, diakonos, that would be a different office, that all of those are the same, addressing the same, somewhat the same position mm-hmm. or same office uh, in terms of what the Bible teaches, uh, whether it's talking about the overseeing nature of it, the shepherding nature of it, or also the elder of someone not That's being right. in youth as well. All of these being important key terms to understand. Teaching, nurturing, protecting, yeah. overseeing, yeah. even account for their very souls. No, 100%. And th- these things are so important for us to really grasp. Not that there's this, uh, there's a presbyter, there's, you know, uh, there's an episcopal, there's a bishop in this, but rather these are different identifying terms being identified throughout the scriptures over and over again. Of the pastoral role. Of the pastoral role. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. So now we're moving on to number eight. It's interesting, but it's not that interesting because it seems very simple because it just said men in the previous (laughs) verse. Now it says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Uh, Yeah, I mean, like I said, we could could just use a couple of these and we made our point. But I, I came up with, I said, I was praying about this and I came up with, 15, uh, and because I just wanted to, like, you know, bury this lie. Uh, but this one, Chad, I mean, you don't have much to say about it because it's so clear uh, that a pastor, an elder, is not supposed to be a man, and, and he desires a, a, a good thing. But it also goes on to say that he must be 
a the husband of one wife, a a a one wife man, right? Have have one one wife in his life, a one one woman man, as it says. And uh, so, can you can a woman be a pastor and at the same time be a one wife man? No, she can't. Thus saith the word of God. And, and again, I believe God is perfect. I believe His word is perfect. We believe Chad and I that. Uh, his word is truth, and that we ought not try to change it. And we're just bolstering truth upon truth upon truth that just makes this subject really, really clear. And I, I just hope that uh, our audience, everybody there, because we've got to protect our churches from these lies. And by the way, Rick Warren has introduced quite a few things into the church that shouldn't be there, right? Uh, we've exposed that in the Submerging Church. Grab that video Chad mentioned earlier if you haven't. Uh, and this is one of the other ways that Satan has used uh, men to subvert what God's called us to. And by the time the camel gets its head, you know, into the tent, uh, well, it's really a Trojan horse. No, it's so true. And and not long after uh, Rick Warren uh, had ordained uh, female pastors, uh, a more local, a bigger church out here that uh, started appointing female pastors as well, not long after, which I find really interesting because somebody who was planted at that church came from none other than Saddleback, Rick Warren's yeah, church. And so fell into adultery with about four different women at that church before he was found out. Yikes, he didn't meet the requirements before that anyways because he wasn't teaching sound doctrine if he was coming from Saddleback. But nonetheless, Joe, that's not uh, that's for a different uh, day, a different teaching. And Joe, the next one I think is of great importance. In fact, when I think about this argument, I was talking with Tony, you know, you guys know the show's producer, on here before, and I said it's so interesting that so many times in the Word of God, it's like God is answering the argument 2,000 years before it comes up. And this is the case, because you you know, Joe, these arguments that come forth, there was a woman, it's talking about a specific woman, and guys, I'm telling you this, there are scholars that I actually really enjoy and learned a lot from that I get so disappointed watching their arguments for women pastors, and when I see this argument, there was a woman, or it's the women in specifically Ephesus it's almost like God was writing verses 14 yeah. and 15 specifically to address this. So I want to read from that, okay, because this is what Paul says. This is after he, rem- just remember, 1 Timothy 2 goes down. We just went through the argumentation. Then here's the, the man, husband of one wife. Then you see the deacons, okay? Then what? Verse 14 says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Okay, so this is Paul wanting to be there to express these doctrines to them face to face. But in the case I'm delayed, so he obviously thought, by the way, Joe, this this idea it was important enough that he's like, even if I'm delayed, I got to get this letter to you. Right. If I can't get there face to face to make this clear to you, I'm going to write this letter. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Uh, there it is again. Uh, he's not talking about, obviously, just Ephesus. This is obviously uh, beyond just the culture at Ephesus. And uh, we'll get into why I mentioned or we mentioned the culture at Ephesus because there's no way around these verses. So some people say, well, maybe something was going on at Ephesus that made Paul say such things, which is kind of interesting because he says the same similar things to Titus, says the same things to, you know, similar things to Church of Corinth, you know, totally different geographical areas. But Chad, he's talking about what how the church is to be conducted He's not just talking about one local church. This is what's to take place in the church. Timothy, by the way, who he's instructing, do you think he's going to leave here and say, I'm just going to throw this letter away now because I'm not at Ephesus anymore? No, this is what's supposed to happen in the church wherever he goes, whether it's Corinth or whether it's you know any of the churches in Asia Minor, 
including Colossae, which is mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 as one of the churches there that Jesus addresses there. But it doesn't matter where he goes, this is the conduct that Paul is saying should take place in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, meaning these truths that he's setting up, that he's explicating here, he's saying, Timothy, this is what is meant for the church. No, and, and this is so important, too, because one of the things that I think about when we read the epistles and we see these specific things going on, whether it's Philemon, right, when you read that short letter to Philemon, or any of the other letters that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, I think, is a great example of this, that what they call in theology an occasional letter is that Paul is writing on an occasion that's taking place in a certain specific place, but he is going to address that, and God is going to, by way of the Holy Spirit, use Paul to write about these occasions that are taking place because he's going to address a timeless truth that will be very important to each of us every day of our lives. So when you have an instance like this, when he's addressing something so specific and then says, this is how it's to be conducted. These are the forms of leadership. This is why when I read 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 right there, right on the backside of the, the offices right before it, and then you see some of the people that put out stuff like Frank Viola and this nonsense with pagan Christianity, like there's just no offices or something, some just yeah. absolute ridiculous well, says, on some of this stuff. You do that if you don't have any leaders. Brags, he's never been disproven. All this, yeah. yeah, Hebrews 13. No, great, great example. And to just see this chaos theory that some of these guys have, it is really heartbreaking. And then you see this is how it's supposed to be conducted. This yeah, is how man. God's word describes these things. So this is important to understand that. All right, Joe. So you're going to go here, the next one. Uh, this is our 10th point here, getting it down to that 15. You're going to go to, I, I call it Paul's living eulogy to Timothy. So this is this is his last letter written to Timothy. He knows he's about to die. He mentions it in this very letter. And you think about he is raising up Timothy, a pastor, and he's writing this letter. This is what needs to take place. This is where some of the most some of those vital scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scripture yeah. is theonistos. It's all God-breathed, and it's used for correction, the training of righteousness, the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. We have, this is what it's going to look like in the end times and what's going to happen and why, guess what, in connective tissue to that, yeah. starting in 2 Timothy 3, when you get to 16, all of these wicked things would happen. Lois and Eunice are mentioned, right? Yeah. Once again, as, as we talked about earlier, and then you see... Stick to the scriptures. Stick to the scriptures over and over again. Amen. But here's what he also says in regards to this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Yeah, and this is critical because we've talked about what's written here. Again, the argument used by so many that don't want these truths to be relevant today, want to cast them aside and say, hey, you know, uh, you can have you know, women pastors in the church. Just what Paul's saying there, it's, it, it was just for that culture uh, and it's that time period. And he wasn't really speaking of timeless truths. Well, we've already shown that Paul goes beyond the geography uh, in every place in the context of the of, of Second Timothy chapter 2. He goes beyond not just the geography, it's trans-temporal, not just trans-geographical. Uh, trans-temporal in the sense that he uh, lets us know it's based on the cosmology, the creative order of God, and so forth. We look at that again where he says he's appointing men and, uh, and, and, and so forth, and that this is uh, base, the basis of which he states this is for the church, which shows it's beyond geography again. But here it is again trans-temporal. Uh, trans, uh, uh, we're talking about a timeless truth for the church, 
because guess what? He says, Timothy, now Paul's getting older, you know, he's about ready to be beheaded by Nero uh, and lose his head. He writes, as you mentioned, Chad, very well. Uh, he's writing his eulogy basically in 2 Timothy, and he's emphasizing what I've communicated to you. Timothy's called his true son in the faith. He's quite a bit younger. Now, Timothy's supposed to communicate that to others, and as Timothy gets older, then we communicated that to other faithful men, and they're to communicate that to other, other men. So you have this transgenerational truth that's come down to us. Well, what's he commanded? What's taught in the pastoral epistles, which includes that he doesn't allow or permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, because the man was created first, and the woman was deceived, and the men are to be elders, and the husband and one wife, and this is for the church, and this is transgenerational to be handed from generation to generation. And, Joe, as we go down and move on to our next point, the truth is, is this is not only told to Timothy, <laughs> but we have Paul appointing Titus to do something similar. And in Titus 1, verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order. Remember, our God is not a God of chaos. Set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. It is really hard, Joe, for me to grasp how a woman could be the husband of one wife. Yeah, and again, we're not talking to Paul to Timothy now. We're talking about Paul to Titus, the same teaching, which makes total sense because as Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 15, that this is for the household of God. This is for the church, uh, you know, the pillar and support of the truth. And now you have in another pastoral epistle, the same teaching being communicated that leadership, pastoral leadership is to be male. Yeah, and Joe, uh, the next point that you're making here in Titus chapter 2, the very next chapter, we just read about the what it's supposed to look like, how, how God is going to use Paul to appoint Titus, to appoint men in order and what that's supposed to look like. And then we get to chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And Joe, once again, it looks like there's a juxtaposition between the man's role in terms of not only here in their household here mentioned, but also when it comes to the pastors, the elders, you know, the presbyteros, you know, and so forth right. that are being uh, appointed there in Titus 1 now with what women are supposed to do. Yeah, amen. And you've pretty much got 12 and 13 together, so we'll just call this 12 and 13. No, it's great okay. because okay. for the sake of time, because we want to get such to the letter that was written by this pastor too. So that's good because, and how are these 12 and 13? Well, number 12 her position is juxtaposed, again, much like it was in Paul's letter to Timothy, where she's not to be the the, the pastor, but is to bring up the children in Christ, right? And the, the husband definitely has a role in that as well, obviously, but he's not birthing the child, you know? He isn't gifted in the same way the woman is gifted. Women are gifted with such mercy, with such uh, sensibilities, not just physiologically, biologically, but I believe spiritually, to be the child bearers, to set the children on the right path. Uh, so she's her position again, just like he did in Timothy after he talks about the man's role and not the woman's role. He juxtaposes the man being the pastor and the woman with childbearing and so forth. He does that again. Okay, that would be number 12. And number 13, she, it mentions her teaching role, which is different than uh, the pastoral role of teaching the church. But what? She's, the older women are to teach the younger, younger women, women, you yeah. know, and so forth. So, uh, 
And unfortunately, a lot of that's not happening in churches, but women are have lost the role often and happens in our, we have had a number of, we have right now uh, different women, uh, you know, Mary has a women's Bible study here. Uh, Lori, Lori Winkler, yeah. Winkler has a, you know, a wonderful women's Bible study here as well. And these women are awesome women of God, man. And I credit the maturity of our women in this fellowship much to them being discipled by these women teachers in our fellowship and the growth of so many of the kids, most of them, to the role that women have played in bringing them up. And then the pastor just plays a role. Okay, It's an important role, but it's just a role. We have to work together. But once you start mixing and matching and saying, okay, let's, let's you know, abdicate your responsibility and put you over here and just forget what God says. We're in a different culture now. You're going to mess things up big time. And that's what that's why the church, one reason, is so messed up today. No, that's so, that's so true. And, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome, Joe, because a lot of times Thursdays are days that we record or go live and stuff. So when I get here in the morning, there's a woman teaching a bunch of women a Bible study. And then when we leave after we do shows, there's a woman teaching a bunch of women a Bible study. That's awesome. And, and it, is, it is an absolute, absolute blessing. Okay, Joe, so since I, I put those two together on accident, not reading the next one before I got to the first one, but uh, or after I got to the first one, but let me look at 14 because what you have here is the mystery of godliness and the divine romance. And I want to read the scriptures you have referenced. The first one comes from 1 Timothy, back to 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. And this is right after, because we'd already talked earlier, this is right after he said, hey, this is how it's supposed to be conducted in all the churches. He says this in verse 16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. And then the other verse that you have referenced next to that is from Ephesians, the fifth chapter, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is awesome. Paul introduces what he calls the mystery of godliness. Basically that God became a man, amen, who is believed upon, you know, speaks of his ascension, you know, he resurrected, he ascended to the Father, and Paul speaks of this mystery, speaks of the church of the mystery, that we're the bride of Christ. He speaks of the mystery of how Jews and Gentiles have become one in Christ and part of the body of Christ. He calls this the mega musterion. Uh, I love it, uh, being being from California, you know, you're looking at the Greek and it's like, wow, this, this musterion is mega, you know, it's the huge, we talk about mega waves, you know, but the mega musterion, this, this great mystery, which 
makes a beautiful wave look like nothing compared to what God's doing in the cosmos with this divine romance of God becoming a man. Why did he do that? He did that so he could get his bride, and so we would become one with him. And this is a powerful point that Paul uh, makes here in Ephesians. He just hints to uh, in in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, by the way, the verse right after what the church is, it's more than just the church because it's a support and pillar of the truth, but we're one with Christ through faith in in, in, in this divine mystery. But the heavy thing about this is, is that this is not a cultural thing. Chad, this is trans, not a, this is, <laughs> this is only the part of the creative order, man be made first, woman being the helpmate. But Adam and Eve, you have, there's a picture going on here, which you can't lose. And, and I think if you've come to this point and you're like, wow, we're at this, this point 14, this one will help solidify it in your mind give you an understanding that there's something super deep going on here. And Paul says this is a deep or a, a great mysterion mystery. And that is, is that we, as the body of Christ, have become one with Christ, right? And, and we're part of his body. And he is the head. And we are his bride. And in doing this, when Adam and Eve were first created, there are pictures. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. And Eve is a picture of the church, right? Jesus. Adam goes into a deep sleep. His side is opened up, right? And then Adam, and then Eve is brought forth. Jesus goes into the sleep of death. His side is opened up on the cross with the javelin. Out comes blood and water, which is uh, the emblems of birth, and the church is birth. Just as Eve uh, went, went to the tree and Adam partook and died, Jesus went to the tree and brought life. He reversed the curse. The thorns and thistles came up in Eden. Jesus wore the thorns and thistles upon his head, which is really heavy, Chad, because the woman gave to the man and he died. Well, you mentioned women are called to evangelism. They're called to share the gospel with men. Well, what happened when Jesus rose from the dead in the garden tomb? That's right. It was a reversal of that. The woman took the gospel to the men and said, he is risen. Amen. They were the first so ones. Yeah. They're the first ones that shared the gospel, and they brought life back into the world, reversing what happened in Eden. All this is a heavy thing. I'm going off it just really quick, I know. But all that to say this, that in the order of leadership, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And this is based on this great mystery, right, of, of the, the cosmic romance that was planned before even creation. And the woman, the wife, is to submit to the leadership of the husband. So this is not only based upon, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, the creative order. That's a big part of it, right? And based on, on the judici judicial uh, divine judgment in Genesis chapter 3, uh, and God's word specifically declaring this in 1 Timothy 3, but this is based on God's plan where the bride of Christ would be submitted to Jesus uh, as his bride forever, and that even as Adam and Eve ruled and were to have dominion over the earth, we're going to reign with Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We're going to reign with him, the Bible says, in the millennial period, and we're going to be with him forever. So Satan hates that. So Satan wants to attack the divine order that God set up between male and female. He wants to erase distinctions. That's what transsexualism is about, transgenderism, so-called. It's really transsexualism. Let's call it what it is. That's what that's about, is try to just erase God's divine plan. And that's why Satan's having a field day, not in the world, but he's trying to bring this into the church. And I'm so glad you're listening because this, as we're presenting this to you, blows away any kind of arguments you're going to get from the world and from those who are succumbing to the feminists in the world and trying to bring this 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 feminist movement into the church yeah amen and i know for this 15th point joe uh it's so important as we get into this because our entire argumentation comes from what the scripture 
And I think that's Amen. exactly what this last point kind of points to as well. Point number 15. When we get into 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I, I think this is real clear. And Chad, it's, it's, it's cool, you know, the way this worked out. The very first scripture we looked at was 1 Timothy 1.3. You know, Paul tells Timothy, I've left you in... Uh, you know, I've left you in Ephesus to teach or command or encourage certain people not to teach strange doctrines. Uh, and then he basically explicates biblical doctrine in the church from generation to generation, which is transgeographical and timeless. And then he goes into this uh, in his second epistle. He warns Timothy in the last days, you know, they're not going to abide by the doctrines that I'm teaching you and the biblical doctrines. They're going to want their ears tickled and be told what they want to hear. And today, that's why the Bible warns us not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There's always a pressure to, to, to not be mocked by the world and be considered dinosaurs when really, when we really understand the truth, the world's way behind, you know. They're clueless often to what's going on spiritually. And uh, the temptation is to be conformed to the world and say, oh, yeah, you know what? You know, uh, we should have transsexuals in the church. Oh, you know what? Uh, we should have women pastors and all these things. And it tickles the ear because it takes the pressure off of you of being persecuted and even mocked. And so in the last days, people are going to want to hear these, well, we're, we're a progressive church, you know? We allow this. And it tickles a lot of people's ears. But that's the very thing that God's word, God warns about. And based on the scripture here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I believe it's a warning that these kinds of teachings would come in, the very things that Paul is militating against. And here we are. We're at that point today. Uh, and we need to hold fast God's word uh, our lives are very short here on this planet. They're temporal. Uh, we have a stewardship. Paul talks to Timothy about the stewardship of the gospel. We need to protect it. We need to protect biblical teaching. And I just want to encourage, and Chad wants to encourage you, we both want to encourage you, don't succumb to, don't don't stick your finger there and say, you know, what's popular? You know, what what's what's popular? Say, what what is truth? What does God's word say? And dig your feet into God's word, and you'll be blessed in the end. And praise God. Uh, that's, that's why you haven't seen women pastors for almost 2,000 years until relatively recently because now it's come with the feminist movement, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and you see that a little bit faster than the earlier than the feminist movement, but it was still, you didn't see it for the first, almost all of church history until, until more recently. Yeah, no, and, and that's really important, guys, for us to understand. There's a reason for that. And in fact, Joe, I want to read this because we only got time to maybe deal with maybe one argumentation and maybe something we could do further down the road if you guys think, hey, this is a good argument, you can bring those uh, forward but uh, we've, we've poisoned this poisonous well, uh, so to speak, uh, to, to start by just going over these important points made in the pastoral epistles. But Joe, I want to read this because, as I said, a lot of this came from not only what's going on with the SBC Church, but also people right here, you know, contacting us saying, hey, I know this is wrong, but I want to be able to convey it. And then when they received a long email uh, after challenging the pastor there, saying, hey, I really don't agree with this, what's going on? This was the email they got back, and I can't read the whole thing, it was pretty long, but nonetheless, this is what they got back. As I mentioned, the main reason why the church traditionally 
has held that women cannot have spiritual authority over males centers on 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 12 in particular. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor at a city called Ephesus, and here's what he says, as I'm sure you've read. Now, I'm not going to read the whole text because we just did an entire exegesis on that, but then one of the things he says regarding it, he talks about these two different types of truth, and he says, number one, could be a timeless truth, meaning it applies at all times to all people in all situations and cultures, regardless of any other variables. Number two, when you look at any text, you need to see if it has a transcultural truth, meaning there are cultural considerations to look at that might render we interpret that text relative to the culture it came from. And then here's what he uses as an argument against what we just went through in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this is what he said. My reason— And this is his point to say, oh, it's a cultural yeah, setting. To say right? that it's a cultural truth is my reasoning is that we need to notice that the prohibition about women having spiritual authority over men is simply one of a few things that Paul prohibits about women in the passage. He first says that women shouldn't have their hair braided. Now, if this is a timeless passage, then we should be teaching that women shouldn't ever braid their hair in the church either. Number two— Then he says women shouldn't wear gold or pearls. Number three, women shouldn't wear expensive clothing. Yikes. I think we both agree and understand that those are just culturally relevant things, Joe. So everything we just read about Timothy, all the fact pointing back to creation, pointing back to the judicial rendering after the fall, all of this stuff that we talked about, it's all just thrown thrown out out because Paul addresses the braiding of hair and all of that right before that, starting at verse 9. Joe, does that mean this whole thing we've been talking about, all of our study today, everything we've been talking about is simply cultural because women braiding their hair is totally fine and what Paul was talking about just meant culturally? Yeah, let me address that as number three in a quick list of cultural arguments because some are going to be out there saying, well, yeah, I would never use that argument, but I'd use this one or I'd use that one and I can deal with them each briefly, 15 seconds each. And this last one, a little longer since it's the main one you bring up. But some say, oh, well, you know, Ephesus was the famous cult of Artemis, and people worshipped Artemis, and women were the leaders in worshipping Artemis, therefore. So a lot of women were trying to be leaders and were leaders in the church at Ephesus there, and Paul is saying, hey, this doesn't look good to the church or what have you. Uh, let's not have the women be pastors and so forth. And it was just a cultural thing. problem is there's no evidence that there were women that were uh, trying to rule the church because of the worship of Artemis. Paul doesn't mention that. In fact, Paul's basis for saying that women aren't to be the teachers and authority have authority over men is not based on that at all. It's based upon what? Based on this beyond the cultural, beyond the geography, beyond time, uh, based on the creative order, you know? So Paul doesn't even address that. We can say, well, maybe something like that was going on. Well, even if it was, Paul still bases this on the order of creation, and this is a timeless truth for the church. So that destroys that. Some will say, oh, well, they were uneducated. Women were uneducated then, therefore they wouldn't be teachers as, as good teachers then as they would be now. Again, that, guess what? By the way, a lot of the apostles were uneducated. Did you know that? You know, in fact, they were basically lambasted because they were uneducated, uh, but they had been with Jesus, you know, you see. So that, that argument doesn't work either. And again, that argument is destroyed again by the fact that it's based on the order of creation, as we've said, uh, the judicial rendering and other arguments that make it very clear that it's beyond a cultural argument. But that argument, Chad, is a very weak argument. Again, because uh, he's talking about uh, women, and he just addressed men lifting their hands in every place. So while he's talking about women, Jewish women in that culture, with a lot of Gentile women that were saved at the church at Ephesus, you see, and 
Paul's addressing the Gentiles, uh, believers in the book of Ephesians as well. So, but let's just look at that argument uh, for a moment. He's saying, well, Apollos says not to braid your hair, wear these costly garments and things like that. And that, that's just a, a cultural thing because, uh, well, if it's a cultural thing that their women, Jewish women didn't dress, didn't braid their hair and so forth, why give the command? Obviously, they are perhaps braiding their hair. And it's Paul, this is argument. And I think this is important. And this argument comes by way of something I had to deal with as a brand new pastor, as a young pastor. When we had a Mennonite gentleman visiting the church, he loved the, loved the church and so, so forth. He was, you know, not uh, living out here, but he started to live out here for some time. And he came to the church for some time and he dressed in plain clothes and he was against wearing rings and, and, and you know, any kind of braiding the hair, any kind of, you know, uh, he's just a plain clothes guy. And he stood up one time because we used to have a share time when the church was young, the church was smaller. And he shared that his opinion on dress and that every, you know, women, you know, men should be wearing their sleeves down to here. Uh, he was against men having facial hair, rings, women, and so forth, uh, dresses down to their ankles practically. can't remember all his arguments, but uh, I had to respond to that. And how I responded to that was because he used a scripture like this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, or 1 Peter chapter 3, which, by the way, I think it's important when you look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Now we're talking Peter, who's addressing people all over the place, not just at Ephesus. And he gives, us, gives the same command about dress. This wasn't just at Ephesus, and it wasn't just a cultural thing. Is it true that Peter and Paul are only concerned about uh, women being modest in the first century, but now you can kind of just wear anything you want and be a streaker and, and dress lavishly and focus more on your dress than the inner person? No. Now, it's interesting when you follow Paul's argument, Paul talks about let their adorning be what? That of good works, which is what you made. Chad made some great points, which we don't have time to totally get into, but love you to piggyback on this, Chad, in a minute. But but uh, he points out that this was in regard to uh, de-emphasizing dress and emphasizing the inner person. That's exactly what Peter does. But let me show you how his argument utterly fails. Paul is not giving an absolutism that in First Peter, for instance, let me read this, very similar. Your dormant must not, he's talking about the, to the women, must not be merely the external. Now, I understand the word merely is not in the Greek. So it sounds like an absolute statement. If the NASB translators and the translators, almost all modern translators, uh, help us understand that this is merely. But if you just read it from the Greek, it's like it sounds like an absolute thing, that you can't do any of this, period. So I'm going to take the word merely out to reflect the Greek more. Your dormant must not be the external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on apparel, but it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable equality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So Peter and Paul, what are they saying? Because it sounds so absolute. Well, if you don't understand Hebrew idioms and you, you, you say, oh, well, this means that you can't do any of this, you're missing the point, and I can prove that to you. First of all, there are Hebrew idioms, Chad, where you take something that is so important that you take something that's also important to people, but you absolutely negate it as the, make it like a zero to emphasize the second part. I'll give you an example. In 1 John 3.18, he says, don't love, you know, in word and speech, but love in uh, word and deed. I'm sorry, but love in truth and in deed. So there's a start. So that means that when I'm talking to my wife, I could be mean to her and use bad language and call her names. And she's, what are you doing? And I say, hey, it says not to love in word or in speech. That's not what that means. Well, it says don't love in word or speech. 
It's de-emphasizing loving in word and speech to make sure the emphasis is on loving and truth and indeed. So these are Hebrew idioms. It happens over and over again. And when I responded to the gentleman that said that, I gave idiom after idiom after idiom after idiom like this. For instance, Jesus says in John chapter 6, he says, don't labor for the food that is the meat that perishes, physical food, but labor for that food which endures for eternal life. So somebody could say, I refuse to work. Well, well, Jesus said, don't labor for the food that perishes. I don't have to work. We would know that's ludicrous because he's not saying not to do that. He's saying to make sure your emphasis in your life is on eternal life. Amen. How do we know when there's an idiom being used? Because we know because it would contradict the scriptures if you took it in the absolute sense. So it would be contradict many scriptures that say, Paul said, if they don't work, don't let them eat. So if you say, oh, I don't have to work based on the scripture. Nope, that's obviously not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the emphasis should be on the work of God. Amen. Well, I don't have to love in word and speech. Well, no, it says to speak the truth in love. So that's obviously not what he's saying there. How do we know this is a Hebrew idiom? Check it out. Let's pay a little more close attention. 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Your adornment must not be merely, and there's no merely there, must not be ex- the external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on apparel. If you're going to take this literally, you have to run around naked. Because he says, literally in the Greek, is don't put on clothes. Obviously, he's not saying go around. That would be the opposite of being modest. He's not saying don't wear apparel or don't braid your hair or that you can't have any kind of gold jewelry. And what did the prodigal son's father, a picture of our Jesus, our father in heaven, put on his son a ring, okay? He's saying that that shouldn't be your emphasis. Your emphasis should be the hidden person of the heart. So this isn't even just a cultural declaration, this is transcultural. To this day, our emphasis should not be on the outside. That's why I don't wear $1,500 suits and I don't have a Rolex watch. No offense if you do have that. That's between you and God. But I'm just saying this, it should be on the inner man, not the outer person. So his cultural argument is just destroyed. And by the way, it's destroyed by the 15 points we made earlier, but it's just been destroyed by some other points too. Yeah, amen. And and guys, I, I really, I just want to encourage you guys. Uh, this, is, this is a deep study. Uh, I know on an important topic, it's something that's going to be brought up over and over again, but this is something you guys can re-listen to and re-listen to and hopefully get a better grasp on those things because, praise God, Joe, we don't have to have any church naked. Uh, you know, Amen. praise God for that. And we get to read the scripture, know what it actually says, know what, it, know what the truth of God's word says. And then we don't say, this is my opinion. We say, we adhere to what God says and whatever he says, that's what goes. Amen. We love you guys. We just want to walk in the truth and We want to make sure that we do what we can to encourage you to walk in the truth and and stay in love with Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.